Players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Deathrite Shaman, Dreadhorde Arcanist, Ragavan Nimble Pilferer, and many others. Battling head to head in brutal combat, they all have but one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by Boshmerl on YouTube, Thraven University, and TheEpicStorm.com. This episode is sponsored by Tales of Adventure. Get sweet legacy staples and much more at ToaMagic.com. Welcome to episode 75 of The Eternal Glory Podcast, The Eighth Deadly Sin. Net decking. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introduction and banter for the week, available in our Patreon-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access. I'm Phil Gallagher, joined by... I'm Brian Coble, aka Boston Roll. And I am Brian Cook. All right, gentlemen, how we doing this morning? Because we're recording on a Sunday morning. I'm doing pretty good, and I'd like to shout out real quick, new Patreon subscribers, Aiden, Steven, and Pink Hat Boy. What's up, Pink Hat Boy? I really hope that that's like a legal name and not a nickname. (laughs) The parents are just like Pink Hat Boy. Shout out to you all for for joining the Patreon, and the rest of you who will join shortly after listening to this episode, I'm sure. Brian, you're uh, old enough to remember this, but my very good friend Royce Walter used to wear a pink beanie to every single Magic event. I wonder if it's Royce's alt. Oh, could be, yeah. Uh, or like Missy's son. <laughs> Yellow hat gave birth to pink hat boy. Love it. All right, before we start doing the Punnett squares to uh, figure out the heredity lines here, uh, why don't we go ahead and get into our Patreon submitted question of the week. Um, and, and this is a good one. Quote, Me and my roommate have been back and forth on the best colors to surround this new combo card. Hint, it's Displacer Kitten. We've discussed multiple ways to test and landed on two that we find suitable. The first of those involves printing proxy decks for the format and playing them against each other. The second involves renting the deck on MTGO and playing it in a few leagues. What are your thoughts and opinions on new archetype testing? It's a very good question. And it's one that you'll probably get a lot of different answers to depending on who you ask. I think if you're looking for focus testing, and I, you two are welcome to disagree with me here, you and one other friend playing a variety of different decks against the deck that you're trying to play is really helpful. That said, I find that a lot of people aren't willing to play enough matches to gain anything meaningful out of it. They'll play like a couple pre-board and then a couple post-board and they'll be like, okay, this dog's a, this deck's a dog, let's switch to the next. And I don't think that's actually super meaningful. I do prefer playing just tons of modal leagues myself, but I also realize that a lot of people don't value that testing as highly, but you get a better idea of your deck against a wide range of opponents and not a constant skill level from whoever your partner is. Yeah, I think that there's kind of two versions of this question too. It's like, we are trying to brew this new Displacer Kitten combo deck. We're trying to find a home for this brand new card versus I want to learn the the Epic Storm. You know, like in a, a fully established deck with resources versus a brew that you are cooking up uh, are going to have different processes. For a new brew, I would do two things. I would proxy up, is it Delver? Just find True North first. 
play 10 sets against Izadelver, focus on the post-board games. If you have a snowball's chance against Izadelver, that's the first bar to clear in this format. And then I would join Moto Leagues and just get that wide experience. And later down the road, if you settle on a list, but you're just having a problem with like green-white depths, then have a targeted set against green-white depths. I think they're both valuable. And as far as like tuning a an important deck that you're planning on running in a Grand Prix or a PTQ or a showcase, like that level of testing, you should probably decide what your problems are. You should know what your problems are by now, uh, by this point, and then target them. But if you're just doing something new, throwing it against the wall in Moto Leagues, just where you can play against Is It Delver one round and then like Pox the next round. I, I think that really gives you the legacy experience and, and you'll know quickly if it if it can hang or not. Poor Pox. We knock that deck all the time. I love Pox. Like every time I say Pox, I just mean that it's a wild deck playing magic differently than everyone else. Like anyone who consumes my content knows perfectly well that right under like Shark Sill and Band Control, Pox is like my number three signature deck. Love it. I'm playing a league with three to four actual Pox sometime in the next week or two. I sent the Pox Discord a message. I'm like, hit me up with your lists. And they're like, Phil, you know this card is questionable, right? I'm like, I didn't ask if it was questionable. I just need the list. Yes. <laughs> All right. But on, on question, I think testing new ideas, be it a single card you're testing or a new archetype testing in paper is really important because you can intentionally manipulate your draws in a way you can't on Magic Online to test things out. So, for example, you can say, like, I want to test Displacer Kitten. I want to see what it's like if I always draw that card on turn four. Like, is that card going to be a good card on turn four? Or, you know, you can essentially, like, set up situations that you can't necessarily set up. Like, hey... If Delver has sideboard card, can I win through sideboard card? You can do pointed testing in a way that you can't on Magic Online because it like breaks the game engine. Yeah, that's a, a great point. And the ability to, while you're live playing, like you make a decision on turn four that then on turn six you're losing because you made that decision. You can be like, oh, wait, wait, let's roll that back to turn four. Let me see if I went the other way if this works out better. And of course, you can't do that in on Magic Online at all, period. It just is not supported to move your cards around outside of the, the game engine. And in leagues, it's sanctioned play. So obviously, you can't do that. One pro to Magic Online here is that let's say I am interested in testing Displacer Kitten. I can have Brian Koval behind my shoulder discussing plays with me that I couldn't do if we were playing in paper, because I don't want my opponent to gain information. So there are pros and cons of both. I don't know if I love the, well, every game I'll draw exactly Displacer Kitten on turn four uh, example, just because like it's a four mana card. If anything, I think you'd always want it to be in your opening hand to see what having a dead four mana card is like, rather than drawing the card at its ideal moment every time. I don't know how great that is, but I also don't have experience doing it. So I could be entirely wrong here. That's something I did a lot with singletons in Death and Taxes, because like you have if you're playing a 60 card version, you might have two Recruiter of the Guards. Uh, otherwise, in like a Yorian version, you have four Recruiter of the Guards to tutor them. And so like if you are just playtesting games with a random singleton in your deck, it's so hard to tell their impact. 
So a lot of times when I was testing things in paper, I would say, like, I'm going to intentionally draw this card on this turn to see how it performs in an average game. Um, that's something that I did a lot. I think stress testing certain types of decks is worth doing as well. Like an example like Displacer Kitten is probably going to be tucked into some control shell a lot of the time, and it doesn't matter if you combo turn 4 or turn 10 as long as you win at one life. Uh, but something like Oops All Spells, where it's like, okay, I've, de I've devised this degenerate turn 1 win deck. I'm going to play against a goldfish who has Force of Will in their hand. Can I get through it? Then I'm going to play test against the goldfish that has Force of Will and Surgical Extraction in their hand. Can I get through that? And like, how hard do I have to mulligan? How far can I mulligan before the hand is non-functional? I can't beat any hate. Like, do I have to stop at one piece of interaction or can a five card hand have two pieces? Like that sort of stress testing of like a really glass cannon, I think is worth doing in the, the testing uh, where you can construct it yourself. Uh, what does a leyline game look like versus a Force of Will game? Uh, that sort of thing, uh, I think, is a great way to use a human. You don't even need a human in the interest of, of oops all spells. Like, you could literally just be like, the goldfish has these. But stress testing what a deck is capable of like that is a, a way that won't work on Magic Online. Another thing about this specific deck is that the loops are not fast on Magic Online. In paper, you just get to say, like, hey, I'm going to repeat this, and you just, like, draw your deck or whatever, and it, like, moves very quickly. Um, but this deck kind of has, like, the Aluren Bomberman problem, where, like, it is a decent amount of clicks. I, I played against someone. It, it was, like, a, a very well-known legacy player, like like a Matthew Vook or someone of that nature playing Displacer Kitten, and he was just like, yeah, this is my first couple of games of this. This is going to be slow. And he ate. I don't know, probably literally 10 minutes of clock trying to, like, figure out all of his lines the first time in comboing. And not clicking through all of that is going to be a boon, especially in your early stages of testing. How often are you to deny playing decks that have just, like, heavily convoluted combos like that with a Magic Online? I have a thing on my website uh, banning specific decks. I used to ban Aluren... I think I took that one off the banned list. Uh, Bomberman is still banned on my channel, as is Food Chain, I believe. I don't have any such rules. If I, I, I want to feature like every deck at least once. Uh, that that is a goal of mine, and I can edit out clicking time. And if we go to time, it's whatever I can. Like the point of content is not always to win. If I can demonstrate that, you know, if this didn't take eight minutes to click through, we would win here. Uh, we can go on to the next round. Uh, I'm okay with that. If I get like four Bomberman submissions in a month, I'll probably decline the the other three after the first one. But I, I don't mind clicking. And it's it's usually not all that bad. I, I played actual intentional four horsemen recently. Like I was given the option to do a workaround that isn't the, the actual banned version. And I was like, you know what? Magic Online is the only place you can play the four horsemen as it's intended. So I'm going to do it, make it work. And I don't mind the work. I also banned Jeskai Ascendancy on my channel after an absolute disaster of a league where it was very hard to combo off and the time stuff was just ridiculous. Oh, I just took on a, an Ascendancy <laughs> this, this week. I hope your list is better than the one I got. I, I played it a bunch in the in the early days of Pioneer and it, it I, I did not I don't know what your list was like, but I did not have that much of a problem. But uh Getting back to the point, um, where are you going to be playing this deck? I think matters a lot too. If you 
test against your friend in paper with your Displacer Kitten deck, and you just like, okay, I have the thing, game two, where in paper, and you're like, wow, this deck beats everything, but then you didn't account for the 12 to 15 minutes of clicking you're going to have to do to actually draw your deck and cast Lassa's Oracle in, in Magic Online, and you show up to the showcase and time out every round, uh, you're going to be sad about that. So kind of like, there, there is like psychology to uh, practice how you're going to play, basically, where... Uh, if like professional sports teams are going to be playing on the West Coast and they're an East Coast team, they they start adjusting their sleep schedule and their play schedule as soon as they can. Like they're playing in the middle of the night on the East Coast so they can fly over to the West Coast and it's like the same time, but it's the afternoon there. I had a college professor, uh, a psych professor, tell me that like if you're going to like aggressively caffeinate or use substances that are uh, a little more illicit to stay awake and study you better be on those substances when you sit down for the exam too, or it's not going to like your brain's not going to connect it the same way. Uh, and uh, you will kind of get these, that friction if you do only paper testing and then try to play moto. I don't think it goes the other way. Can you guys think of any reason why uh, moto testing wouldn't transfer into paper? Missing triggers is a big one, right? Like ma magic online does a lot of stuff for you. Like if you, if you know how to play tight and you know how to track your stuff, it's fine. But like, I've definitely heard stories of people like used to playing on Magic Online and they're like, yeah, I was definitely sloppy for round one. I tightened up after that. But yeah, Phil knows lots of Chalice players. Uh, even more than Chalice, like Chalice is the the famous trigger check because the triggers you miss are so devastating much of the time. But Dragon's Rage Channeler, I've played against people in paper who are like straight up 50-50 on remembering to surveil. Or, like, they cast Brainstorm and just pick up three cards, and then they're holding the three Brainstorm cards and look at their DRC, and they're like, oh, uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and then just resolve their Brainstorm. That happens all the I, time. I find it's more of an issue for players when they have multiple triggers, and, like, they have to happen in certain orders. And it's like, oh, nope, you've done this thing that demonstrates that you missed this thing. Yes. Like an on-cast trigger versus an enter-the-battlefield trigger, like that sort of thing. You know, gotten a lot of players uh, being sloppy with elves or, or something like that, for example, where like, oh, that creature entered the battlefield, you gained life off your Essence Ward, and now you can't draw your Glimpse card or something like that. Yeah, like Glimpse, draw, and Nettle Sentinel untap happen on cast, but then like the draw card from Elvish Visionary happens on battlefield, and it does matter what order those happen in. Yeah, Magic Online would help you. Magic Online, though, also helps you visualize that if you're actually looking at the stack, if you're looking at Magic Online putting objects where they belong when they're supposed to be there. That really helps conceptualize the stack, which is kind of a difficult thing if you've never actually seen it actually stacked up. So Magic Online can help there as well. Elves is a great example because it's so technical in the way that the deck works. And I think a lot of Elves specialists don't always realize it. I believe it was Grand Prix Louisville like a handful of years ago. I got paired against somebody on Elves. They started doing the glimpse thing and they did something like they untapped their sentinel or something had happened and then they just looked down at their board and they just like i can't remember what they said but they mumbled something like f this i'm so bad and literally just picked up their cards and i had no idea why like as someone who didn't play elves like i didn't realize they missed some sort of like trigger or whatever but this person was just so frustrated that they missed their trigger that they just picked up and went home yeah get out of here that might have been an extreme reaction um i have a uh, a coaching client and uh patreon sub who i've been working with for a while who plays elves as his main deck and he picked it up during covid and like when events started happening he's like what do you recommend and i was like have you goldfished your deck 
in paper. Have you just put your 60 cards in front of you and moved the cards around with your hands yet? And he was like, no. It's like, well, you better for the next two weeks before this event, whenever you have downtime, when you're watching TV, whatever, like goldfish hands, move around, like pick up the forest, untap the creature with query and ranger, untap your nettle sentinels, remember your sequencing, because just that muscle memory is going to be so big. When I was playing elves, still when I play elves, a lot of people will like when they use their uh, wirewood symbiote, they'll turn it upside down to indicate it's been used already, or they have like little tricks like that one time i was in the middle of going off with elves and my opponent reached across the table and turned my wirewood symbiote upside down and i turned it right side up and said don't do that again and i continued comboing because it is it is strategically advantageous for you to know where all your moving pieces are and your opponent lose track of them like you can't cheat you can't lie you can't like hide a wired symbiote under your lands or whatever but like if if i can explain to you quickly what i've used and why and like get you caught up on the game state, but you miss something because you don't know how all my pieces work. That's advantageous to me for knowing my deck that well when you don't. And uh, that is, it's part of the game. And by using little shortcuts, like turning your cards upside down, you help yourself learn your combo, but you also help your opponent learn your combo. That's a gray area that a lot of people aren't going to like, but part of the game. Imagine being competitive, Brian. Couldn't be me. I know. Imagine paying money and expecting to use the tools that you have to win a prize at the end outrageous i i think this is probably a good point to transition into our main topic of the show uh which is actually a rather competitive thing the process of net decking hate net deckers dirty dirty net deckers yeah this is a word that definitely has a bit of a social stigma uh, let's define it. net decking before we even get started this if you've never heard this word, which honestly, until I started like getting into EDH and like touching tips with EDH Twitter, I had not heard this word in probably eight to 10 years. And basically, it's the process of going on the internet and copying a list rather than building your own from your brain, which seems so trivial in the era of MTG Goldfish and Arena Data and uh, 17lands.com. Like we have data like mining data and there's lists everywhere but this was like a real thing people got angry about probably 15 years ago 20 years ago definitely i remember those times i'm very old yeah and and still to this day there is a sweet spot of people uh, and we're gonna kind of talk about like who they are and what their mentality is but there are folks who still think that you should only ever play decks that are your own unique creation. Let's all right. So that's net decking. It's pulling a, a deck off of the internet and copying it and playing it. So as far as the social stigma goes, like some people view magic as like an outlet of creativity. They want to see their own brew in action. You know, they want to spend their time tinkering with the cars that they rip out of booster packs and building the the best things that they they can with them. And like there is like an artistic expression element of deck building. And someone who is motivated like this is not necessarily in the full competitive mindset of like, I am going to go, I am going to play the best deck, I will adjust my one or two cards to adjust for the metagame, and like, this is the way that I am going to win. Yes, I remember the first sanctioned tournament I ever joined. It was an FNM at a Wizards of the Coast retail location in the Bridgewater Mall in New Jersey, and I didn't know what Type 2 was. I just knew what magic was, and I had a bunch of decks in my long box, and the only one that was even close to Type 2 legal at the time, which is now called Standard, by the way, was a five-color Cavu tribal deck, and it was literally just the Cavus that I had pulled out of packs 
over my my time opening packs and the lands I had that might be able to cast them. There were probably 90 cards in this deck, maybe more. And I was just like, I was just experiencing magic through opening packs. And I noticed that, oh, there are more than there's like a bunch of these type of creatures and some of them care about each other. And there was like a Lord or like whatever. And I put them together with the like uncommon cycle of like coastal tower and whatever you have a Maya palace from invasion block and i had this deck and my round one opponent had this hyper focused blue red control deck with avatar of fury avatar of will counter spells burn spells and i just was never in any game and i remember just like being bewildered like wow how did you get all these rares and like because i at one point he had like three avatar of wills in play and i was like i've never even seen three of these in the same place how did you get these (laughs) and like the idea of a game store and purchasing singles and like focusing a deck and spending money specifically to acquire cards to make a deck better was just foreign to me and everybody is there at some point uh but you can like be mad of like wow you spent all that money on these rares just to beat me like play it with your wallet huh why don't we just put our credit cards on the table instead of play magic Or you could be like, wow, that's cool. That's a way to approach the game I had not considered. And it it is jarring when you have been so deep, when you're at the point where you're listening to a legacy podcast, and then you end up pairing into someone who brought their own deck. Uh, It can be a jarring social experience. I was having a conversation with Dre on Twitter this morning where I was like, yeah, so many Magic players approach Magic as like, I built a flyer deck. And it's so easy to forget that when you're so entrenched in in Magic content, like many of us are as content creators or you are as someone who is listening to a, a competitive podcast, right? And like taking that step back and realizing that like someone else is going to have very strong opinions about like something like a topic like net decking that is just so secondhand to you um just like shows you how many people are enjoying magic and playing magic in different ways yeah i think it has a lot to do with and i mean you can correlate this to real life but people are always at different stages of their lives i remember being the kid where net decking was like shamed upon at the time and if someone's still saying that today there's a good chance and i'm not trying to belittle belittle anyone here but they're likely a game store hero they're the they're the guy that wins fnm with their brew they might be slightly better than the other players but ultimately they haven't reached their full potential yet and that's fine i was that person at one point too but there's a lot of growing and learning at every single step before i played magic online i thought i was big shit i thought i was so good i had won a star city i was pretty good i had a gp top eight you know didn't matter i sucked and then i started playing on magic online and i became so much better my deck building became so much better and i grew as a person and as a player so i think just remember that when you face somebody who's like oh you dirty net decker that maybe they just haven't matured enough or realized yet and that's fine too there is a magic pro from the mid to late 2000s i'm not going to say their name because they are currently in prison for some horrible things but They were known for brewing, always brewing. It was a big deal. Like uh, Brian David Marshall, when he had his weekly column, wrote a whole like uh, bio piece about this person when they won their first PTQ with just like a ridiculous deck of their own design. And then they spent their next like couple years uh, grinding PTQ wins and then failing at the Pro Tour because they insisted on playing brews. They were just so much better on raw skill than the ptq field but unwilling to actually like play good decks at the pro tour that they just like got kicked to the curb and we're just in that win a ptq 
break out of the Pro Tour cycle for about two years, but they had a content career and everything based on their brews. And then around uh, Scars of Mirrodin, when Tempered Steel was just the best deck, not close, uh, the team, this person's team finally convinced them to just play the best deck. They top eight the Pro Tour. And then, like, everything changed. And for, like, the next couple of years, I think this person has two or three Pro Tour top eights uh, in the, the span when he decided to just, like, play the best deck. He was like, oh, yeah, uh, I, I, I built a lot of muscle. It's like training with the, the leg weights on in, in like Naruto when Rock Lee takes off his his leg weights and they shatter the floor. And he, he's now he can move at supersonic speed or whatever, or like Goku takes off his heavy shirt. Uh, like, that's basically what's going on when you're playing with brews. And at some point, you're it depends on your motivations. Uh, if if it is important to you to express your creativity and win less often as a result, that's okay. Uh, if it is important to you to get your money's worth at every tournament by maximizing your ability to win, that's okay. If you can marry both, good for you. Like you're you're living the dream. But it is. I don't think it is reasonable to be mad at someone for choosing to use the tools at their fingertips rather than working too hard for less uh, by insisting on brewing everything, especially in a format as powerful and established as Legacy. Another thing kind of as an offshoot off of this, like you can start with a net deck list and a lot of time they require tuning and you can take pride and satisfaction in tuning a list and making some changes to a list in that like create meaningful and impactful changes to a format right like there have been multiple people who have iterated on delver in meaningful ways and learned some important stuff right like we had two delver builds we had delverless builds like there have been a, a lot of iterations where even you know air quotes net decking something like delver but then iterating on it can produce something meaningful and like you can take pride in those results maybe it's a little different from like you brewing something from scratch and you take pride in that, but you can you can make changes, uh, figure out sideboard cards, figure out tech, and that's just as meaningful. Phil, I just saw this list online. It has two mind harness in it. I don't want to play that card. I'm going to switch it. This is an example of something that happens without fully understanding. So yes, you can iterate on decks and change decks, but I don't always love... Because I think there's this idea of ownership, too, when it comes to net decking and deck building, where people want to add their own touch to something without fully understanding why, which I think is actually sort of an issue. Because sometimes people will cut crucial cards without ever realizing why they're important. I have some great examples for this one. So, uh, old man voice, back in the MTG Salvation days, the most common thing that new players to Death and Taxes would say is, I don't get Flicker Wisp. Like, it doesn't seem like that card is on plan. It seems really slow. I think I, I, I'm i just going to cut this from the deck. And I'll always, I'm always like, hold on a second. You haven't played enough games to understand why this card is in the deck yet. And so until you understand why it's in here and you realize all the things it can do, you shouldn't be cutting that card. And that, I think, is one of the, the biggest things that people, like, kind of fail in in adjusting deck lists is like you don't have enough games or reps or fam uh, like format familiarity to start making the changes that you want to make in an informed way yeah most people i'm gonna quote patrick sullivan on this from an episode of the resleepables 
Most people are dog shit at evaluating cards and building decks. Dog shit. <laughs> that word is aggressive, but, Love but he's right. Yeah. Uh, shout out to the, the man, Peace Ollie. Most people are not good at evaluating cards. Like every spoiler season, we see people just going berserk about a card that ends up seeing no play. And then the idea of like str- evaluating 75 cards or 95 cards in the context of an established format and making something coherent. It's hard, and it's not a personal failing if you're not good at it. Uh, I was playing Magic probably 20 years before I really even started to dabble in deck building outside of casual formats, where it was like, like the stuff I do on my channel where I can just sort of like be sent an idea and like, okay, this is what they want to see. Let's apply it to Legacy. This is going to need some Chalice of the Voids to back it up. Like that is uh, 25 years of experience. It is only a recent thing that I felt confident doing. I want to talk about this person from the local game store. I call him Worm Coil Guy in my brain. And this was a person who was a kind of a known rager. Like, nobody really liked this person. I'm not sure if they're listening to the cast, but if they are, nobody liked you. I'm sorry <laughs> if you know who you are. But they invented this red-white modern, like, kind of prison, but not really deck. It just had a lot of removal in it and like chalice of the void and the only threat i think was worm coil engine there were just like four worm coil engines at the top end and uh, i think it might have been a wildfire attack i don't know it was a mess but i played against this guy and he ended up casting his worm coil engine on like turn nine or whatever and i path exiled it and he was like Ugh. and then he played another one path to exile that one too and then i won the game because he had no threats and then uh, in game two a similar thing happened like the third time i path to exile the worm coil engine he was like oh you always have it and i was like that's because there's no other threats in your deck you're bottlenecking the paths in my hand until the point where i can point them at your worm coil engine you're not challenging me at all put a goblin rabble master in here put something to flush these cards out of the hand Like, this is bad deck building. I didn't say this is bad deck building to him, but, like, trying to explain that, like, you need to, there's, like, a lot of context to, like, Bryant talks a lot about virtual card advantage. Like, don't give your opponent a target for that sort of plowshares, and everyone they draw is, like, they got Ravenscribed throughout the course of a game. It's so bad if you have exactly one target for swords of plowshares in your deck, because they're gonna have it. You've given them no opportunities to flush it out. They're gonna have it. 100% every single time. And like, that's the sort of thing that a person can be mad at the net decking path to exile player, or they can understand why red, white, worm coil as the only threat isn't an established deck in modern already. There are lessons to be learned here if you choose to learn them, or you can be mad. And that's, I feel like I'm sliding into dangerous territory here, but it's something that we have talked about on the pod a little bit and like constantly comes up in Twitter discourse and stuff. Casual folks see tournament players as toxic because we you know want to win but in my experience which obviously comes from the realm of a tournament player and is biased i find casual folks to be generally more toxic because at least like the behavior of tournament players can be defined by the magic tournament rules and the infection procedure guide and the uh, comp rules of magic gathering and judges can enforce it and we at least have a lane we operate in that is defined the idea of just like being mad or yelling at someone or talking down to someone or refusing to play with someone because they don't do the thing that you wanted that is defined by nothing and they couldn't have no you wanted is just like really shitty to me and like you get into this sort of uh viewpoint battle of i think it's toxic that you're being shitty to me during a fun game of magic and you think it's toxic that i bought four of the best rares and put them in my deck 
in a coherent way while you're playing the cards you bought got in a draft last week it it, it is tough to balance that and like fostering an education sort of environment where you could talk to someone about like hey do you want me to help you improve your deck or reading the room that they're so mad that they don't want to talk to you at all and just let them walk away and be wrong like uh, it is really tricky to navigate these when you run into that friction um giving a real life example of just like getting everyone on the same page uh on friday i was a guest on smooth brain edh um that video will be on their youtube channel eventually whenever they're done editing and rather than like have any sort of power level discussion ahead of time they were just like Hey, Phil, send us your deck. We'll build to your power level. And that just like avoided me having to like have any awkward like, oh, yeah, this deck's a seven sort of situations where like we just didn't get on the same page in terms of power level. And like in that setting, that was perfect. But like if you are showing up to an event, you know, let's call it a low stakes event like an FNM, the rules for what's are acceptable at FNM has been, you know, stated by you know basic rules and tournament prize structure and all that stuff but some people go there expecting one experience and sometimes get another experience and when those things happen like people will end up being unhappy even if no like formal rules were broken well we just slid right out of net decking and deck building straight into expectations of casual versus competitive players but i i guess they are all uh related because like i said i hadn't heard the word net decking in eight to ten years before very recently stumbling into casual edh twitter i has anyone ever said net decking just as a as just like a a verb or noun uh with no emotion attached has anyone ever been like oh yeah i just net decked like uh nasif's version or is it always like i remember that being a thing like in 2008 because people would ask you if you built this deck you're like oh it'd be a net deck i mean that's at least what i remember because like I played a lot of games for Magic at the time, and people would be curious where you got ideas from. Uh, it wasn't always like a negative thing, but they'd be like, oh, where did you did you build this? Did you find it? I, th- I wonder, uh, like, there's no way for us being all as entrenched as we are to, to understand this, but I do wonder if net decking or like the idea of net decking with all the the weight attached is still as big as it was in 2005, because of the prevalence of the internet and data mining and everything. Like I imagine with arena existing and like the, the esports world and 17 lands.com, just farming draft data constantly for pick orders and stuff. What number of people just like download arena and immediately go to MTG goldfish to find a deck. Like I just learned how to play magic in the arena tutorial. Now I need a deck to play. I'm going to slide over to goldfish. That, that number must be much higher than it was in like 2008. Of like, like, how do you find the source, much less navigate it and then find all the scars? I don't know. Uh, just I have a real life example of this. A coworker of mine who's two levels in seniority above me broke his leg or something and while recovering, decided to start playing mobile games, found Arena on his own, started playing Arena, really liked the idea of black-white life drain. So whenever they would gain life, he whenever they would lose life or gain life, your opponent would, I don't know. One way yeah, or like, like the cleric stuff. Yeah. Yes. Was fascinated by it. And he's like, oh, I have so many wild cards. I'm up to 40 rare wild cards. He's got like 50 mythics and, you know, infinite amount of the. I'm like, are you buying sets? So he's like, oh, no, this is all from grinding. I don't pay anything. So you know how much time he's putting into this if he's got 40 rare wild cards. It's a lot. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Uh, have you looked into buying like a competitive deck yet? And he goes, what? I'm like, well, you've certainly been doing well with your life drain deck. 
but have you looked at like MTG Goldfish or whatever? And like didn't even phase him that was a thing he could do. So I showed him Goldfish. He goes, oh, wow, there's so many like four ofs in these decks. And because he was only playing with like the rares that he had opened, much like Brian had described. So you can get to 40 rare wild cards or whatever through grinding and putting in a lot of time, or you could probably win more by playing the Goldfish deck, but it completely blew his mind. He like he couldn't comprehend going to a website and just like picking up a deck list from someone who was just like brand new to magic. All right. Yeah, that's that's good information. Yeah, that person like found Arena while their leg was broken. That That's a way in. I wonder about the people who like are just an avid consumer of Twitch content and just like stumbled across the Magic Pro Tour one day being Arena streamed with like a uh, cardboard live or like whatever the, the stream object is that you could click on and the deck list pops up and like you get Marshall Sutcliffe and Louis Scott Vargas like, oh yeah, here's the here's the drown in the lock. There's four of those in the deck and the mill strategy enables that and like what what's the entry look like for that person rather than the my legs broken and i'm bored person i would feel like that person that you just described is way more likely because i feel like looking up deck lists is a part of streamer culture so even if you didn't watch the pro tour where marshall sutcliffe and bdm are talking about four ofs or whatever you've probably watched a stream where your favorite streamer has brought up goldfish and been like okay my opponent's playing teamer delver i'm going to look up teamer delver i am gonna go ahead and pivot us into the net decking is bad sometimes portion of the cast now a lot of times when someone builds a deck and you see the published result you don't necessarily understand what they were building that deck for and a lot of times you might see that deck list a week after it came out and if you are taking a deck list and you are just downloading it and playing it as is without giving it some thought sometimes you're going to miss some stuff and you might not understand that hey i'm playing rest in peace here because my local meta is full of these slow graveyard oriented lists Whereas online, you might want to be playing something faster because there's lots of oops or reanimator or something. So sometimes just copying someone's list verbatim without understanding the context that that list was made for is bad. And this is particularly important for something like a small metagame, like a legacy showcase challenge, for example, where you know like a lot of the people that are going to be there, or maybe in particular for a pro tour where you are expecting the format to be dominated by maybe about three decks, and so like you are making some inbred decisions for that specific metagame. Yep, or the uh, the Brian Kibler special, where you have a secret sideboard card to beat your own team's deck, your own testing team. Getting Kiblered is what they call it. Rich Shea was really into Kiblering us when we used to test together. We'd show up with like four people with the same deck in a tournament, and he'd have one card in his sideboard to beat us. Uh, if you're not sure, like, oh, what's this weird card doing? Why does Kibler have this two of in the sideboard, and the rest of the team doesn't? Like, you might not understand the context of that, and... Or like, I remember a couple months ago, somebody did well in a showcase with three main deck Pyroblast in there is a Delver deck. That shit doesn't fly in leagues, but it's brilliant for the showcase. Yeah, or for example, there was a meme weekend in Legacy a couple years back where everyone decided they were just going to like register. Was was it like Oops All Spells or, or Char Belcher Belcher. or something like Belcher. that? It was Belcher. If you were a Spike that weekend... Like, you might have walked into that event with some wild shit in your sideboard, just knowing, like, hey, literally 20 people are going to be on Belcher. Like, do I want Mind Break Traps? Like, do I want a Pithing Needle for Belcher, like, that I normally wouldn't play? 
I, I didn't dive into the deck list for that weekend, but I imagine there was weird stuff in there. Yeah, I remember even recently, like the sort of like ban protests that happened in Popper, where like Arizak's 5-0 premiere event with 60 basic lands, and then people tried to do it in Legacy. And then like the Legacy challenge had like 20 people who were on with that plan, and then like 12 people who just showed up with decks to win the Legacy challenge. And, you know, those results are going to look weird. Uh, sometimes weird stuff happens. Um, there's also like sometimes like uh, Julian Kanab, he was on 61 card elves for a while. Like the 61 Julian special, he just, it was a thing he did for a while, couldn't find the cut or leaned into the meme. I'm not really sure what it was, but if I was like at a magic tournament and somebody was like pile shuffling their deck and got up to 61, I'm like, oh, you're elves. Explain that to me. That's sort of, uh, that's also one of the tests that I put myself to when I'm looking at a list. It's, do I understand every card in this deck? And if I don't, I need to dig deeper. And if digging deeper doesn't yield any results... I will then change the card, but I'm not going to be like, oh, this is nonsense. Uh, Mind Break Trap isn't good, or I don't like Leyline. Uh, one Leyline of the Void is something that very recently I worked with. Uh, I played one Leyline of the Void in Dark Band in the sideboard. I had Pokemoki explain that to me. I was like, what are you doing here with one Leyline? This is a zero or a four kind of card. And he was like, well, actually, with our endurances, and we are a black deck, so we can buy time to cast it. And then sometimes it's just in your opener, at which point it's the it's better than Surgical Extraction. And I'm just like, wow, all of that makes sense. I'm going to play one Leyline of the Void in this deck. Sometimes having somebody who understands something better than you explain it to you fixes a situation that otherwise you would have messed up on. Yeah, I I made a mis pretty egregious error in a video a couple of weeks back. It was when I first started playing Pioneer and I had like literal zero reps in with the format, like hardly knew what the cards did, was reading a lot of stuff as I went along. And I missed that one of the cards had a combo kill with warlocks class i think i think it's like the deck runs like a singleton like peer is it peer into the abyss can that one target your opponent it can yeah so i missed that if you have like a leveled up warlock class and a peer into the abyss it just killed the opponent and in the deck tech i was like yeah i don't really get what's going on with this card i'm not gonna take it out because i'm probably missing something but it's, this looks bad to me and then like end around four, I'm like, oh, that's what it's here for. Okay, I get it now. Fun fact, Phil, twice in my life, I've targeted my opponent with Peer into the Abyss on accident because you start narrating your plays. It's a black card you grab from your sideboard with Burning Wish. And without thinking, I just pointed at my opponent. And then my reaction is always the home alone face where I'm like, what have I done? Yeah, I... I was comboing off with a deck recently and I was like narrating my lines, moving my hands around, like went back, went to uh, untap a grim monolith and I untapped a mox opal that was already untapped instead and fizzled my combo. And I was just like, okay, we're not going to get mad. We're just going to try to win next turn instead. I gave true name nemesis protection from myself once. <laughs> That was great. I got away with it, though. My opponent never blocked it, never noticed, and eventually they cast a Supreme Verdict, and I was like, ah, oh, we dodged. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I've ever even checked. Then again, I'm not Yeah, why would you? It, it's cards. crazy. I don't know. Uh, Pithing Needle on Pithing Needle was one of my favorite just streamer brain oh, yeah, parts, that's though. That's classic. To break the fourth wall here a little bit, we have a Tuning versus Brewing Bullet here, and I don't know about you two, but I don't really consider myself a brewer. Like, I am someone who played a lot as a kid and was really interested in playing Storm Combo in other formats and decided to work on it in Legacy, but I never thought of myself as a brewer. I'm definitely someone who tunes a lot. Uh, how do you two view yourselves? I'm in the same boat. I consider myself a horrible deck builder, but a fantastic tuner. For example, right now, I have a donation to play with a 
Prosbloom decklist. And like, that's a deck that I've never seen in action. It was just like before my time as a Magic player. I know nothing about it. And someone's like, yeah, update that for 2022. And I was just like, uh-oh, I don't know that I can do this. And then I got a couple of starting deck lists from people. And it's like, okay, now that I have something that I can start to work with, I can see how the pieces move. I'm very bad at square zero and pretty darn good at like tuning once I have an established starting point. Yeah, it once again, it depends on our goals. Going back to that part of the conversation, if somebody like just wants to see Resplendent Angel win a match in Legacy, I can probably build a shell that'll make that happen. Like I'll get one out of five in a league. There's enough powerful Legacy cards I can put around this thing and make it happen. As far as like actually inventing a new archetype like uh like bryant when you all the work you've done over the decades for the epic storm like that's monumental and now part of legacy and like uh tony scaponi just top aided the leaving a legacy open yesterday with uh, the epic gamble which is a thing of his design uh based on the work of others but uh, extremely unique in its execution like there are people out there really brewing decks that can win but once you brew then it's a nonstop tuning exercise, right? Where where does brewing end and tuning start? Like, is it the first top eight of an archetype? Now we're just tuning. Like, I, it there's kind of a line at some point where I, I definitely consider myself a tuner, though. To answer the question, like this, I I won a tournament yesterday with Pokemoki's Yorion Cat Combo deck with Displacer Kitten. I played it on the channel. The list he sent me, ninety five cards. It's a Yorion deck. There's some really inspired choices in the list that I would not have thought of on my own. Uh, there's one Animate Dead in the list. There's one Solitude in the Recruiter of the Guard package. There's two Recruiters of the Guard. Like, that's somehow the perfect number in an 80-card deck. There's two days in this 80-card deck. I wouldn't have come to any of those numbers. Pokemoki is an actual, like, excellent deck builder. But once that deck was in my hands, I was like, we can win immediately if we add a Mox Amber and a Thassa's Oracle. Like, his early drafts were just trying to, like, put Mentor into play and pass the turn with a handful of counter spells. Uh, and I was like, no, we can actually just win with a two-card package. Like, I added that. Then after playing the deck, uh, his his list had a Scrubland, didn't have a Mystic Sanctuary. I cut Scrubland for Mystic Sanctuary, moved the fetches around so Mystic Sanctuary made more sense, and I think that improved the deck. Like, those sort of, like, I changed four cards out of his 95, and they all made the deck better, but I would not have had anything to work with without a, a true deck builder to hand me the first draft. Moving the conversation in a slightly different direction, just because a deck list gets posted does not mean that it is optimal. Amen. Preach. Take something like a Yorian deck list, for example. Like, how confident can you ever be in the singletons in your Yorian deck list? At what point can you say, like, this is it, this is exactly what I need for all circumstances, like, I'm very sure of it? Like, if you're playing a tight 60-card deck list with a whole bunch of four ofs, like, you might be really confident that, like, you've nailed the deck list. And in the, like, Yorian decks where, like, you can have just completely different styles of games depending on what you draw in particular, it is so hard to say with confidence that you've nailed it. Um, and, like, Saga versus non-Saga Death and Taxes is a, gr a, like, great example of that where people were, like, pretty fired up on both sides of the equation that, like, they were just right that their build was better. And it's so hard to tell because those games play out so differently yeah and like even the context of those one-ups like i played a couple events with yorion money pile and modern and that's a four eladomri's call deck 
So, like, if you put one Magus of the Moon and one Titania Protector of Argoth in your deck, you have four bullets to find them when they're appropriate, and you're unlikely to draw them when they're not. That's cool. Uh, and you've clearly maxed out on that tutor package because you're playing four of your tutor. But this Yorion Cat deck that I was just talking about has two Recruiter of the Guards. Like, what confidence level are we at where uh, we have, like, three one-of bullets to tutor with our two Recruiter of the Guards? Death and Taxes at least plays, like, a large number of Recruiters to find its bullets, and it, most of its bullets aren't one-ofs either. They're, like, there's, like, Sanctum Prelate and, like, maybe, like, a, a uh, Othersworn Canonist. Like, there, there's a couple one-ofs in the deck to be tutored for, but in general, you just want more of all your good cards. And, yeah, that, that level of confidence in... An 80 card deck that's not even maxing out on tutors is it's all it's all fake on a side note brian that whole elodomri's call megas package fuck that i lose to it all the time and i hate it <laughs> wrecked, i just want to make that known get wrecked nerd neoform mana base is terrible and i've tried to fix it and i can't yeah uh i the one of magus and the moon in the 80 card yorian deck with the four Eladomri's calls has bailed me out of so many situations. I also played a deck recently. It was uh, it had four Eladomri's call and four uh, finale of devastation. So you could just always have whatever one of you want and uh, beat Tron with a, a main deck Magus of the Moon, fun of one of that with eight ways to find it. It's pretty great. Kind of extending this argument a little bit more for the CEDH folks out there. Now you are dealing with a 100 card deck list that introduces even more variance. And like, to what extent are you confident that those cards are correct? Um, I started looking at some of the CEDH primers and like I, I went in there with a lot of questions. Like I obviously don't know a lot of the format being very new to it but like i i sat down looked at the mana base for the deck i was playing and i went like oh a third of these don't produce green mana for turn one and i'm a deck that wants to be playing like my arbor elves and uh green enchantments on turn one like carpet of flowers abundant growth like that sort of stuff like that's not okay like how have you been getting away with this and so like i started cutting colorless lands and i was like well hold on don't cut that that card's really good and i'm like but the greed um and i've had some really interesting conversations with folks about deck building in these hundred card formats where it's a combination of like, I'm bringing a hypergeometric calculator to the conversation and you're bringing 500 games worth of experience to the conversation. And that again, loops us back to context in building and tuning, where in EDH, you're, it's a 99 card or 98 card main deck to calculate your opening hands from. You get a free mulligan in that format. So you get to go to seven twice because it's a multiplayer format that's just in the rules of magic and then you start going to six from there so you get to be really aggressive with mulligans to keep a functioning opening hand the decks are powerful enough to win on five cards so you see uh 28 cards before you have to settle on five of them and they might just win the game on the spot uh, that's a thing that we don't get to do in 60 card formats also the deck building sensibilities in singleton formats where you it's frequently not about having the best thing it's about having more of the thing i don't really want to play an offer you can't refuse in as a counter spell i don't want to give my opponent mana but at some point uh spell pierce swan song fluster storm miscast dispel you, you just run out of ones that don't give your opponent a resource that they can use easily and you, you if you just need another one mana counter spell that's that's the next one on the list and deck building is just very different with those different incentives all right um do we have any kind of final thoughts on uh neck decking here you know for the good or the bad i just want to make one more it was that 
a lot of the times, if you are excited about something, like something, like if you think in your head you just broke something, you probably didn't. And make sure to reread all of the cards involved in whatever interaction it is you think you broke. Make sure you understand the rules around that interaction, that it actually does what you think it does. This is not to disparage any individual person and your own intelligence, like uh, you're all smart, but there are tens of thousands of smart people looking at all the same cards you are. And if you've never heard of something uh, three months after the set came out, it is more likely it doesn't do what you think it does than that everybody missed it. And sometimes it happens. Run it by some people you trust and be like, does this work how I think it does? Does this fit? Because Every single time I get an excited message where it's like, you got to play my deck on the channel. I broke it. Like, this is fundamentally different. And here it is. My response to that nine times out of 10 is just like, okay, one of us doesn't understand what your engine does. Can you explain it to me? And then the response is always, oh, oops, it's me. Uh, I I misread this. Uh, Really cracking in established format in the arena moto data era probably isn't going to happen and that's okay but just really check into that i had to uh in my judging days i had to inform a, a poor player once that their uh, oracle of moldia you may play lands off the top of your deck they they didn't realize that was still subject to the one land per turn rule and they had built an entire deck full of four Oracle of Moldias, some large number of mountains and four valakuts and their plan was to mulligan for oracle resolve it and win on the spot and they had registered this deck and were sitting down in round one of a an actual like i don't remember if it was like a 5k or a ptq but it was at the philadelphia convention center it was a large event and they showed up just like confident in this thing that is completely non-functional run that by some people (laughs) someone else would have found that i promise yeah i can absolutely confirm this is someone else who does donation deck lists a lot of times i will get a a sweet deck list i'll sit down i'll look at it and then i'll send someone an email and be like hey why is this here and they're like oh it combos with this actually here's how this ruling works and just uh referring back to something we've said lots of times like knowledge is power when it comes to magic like the better you know the rules the better you can brew the better you can understand these fringe interactions yep and we've all been there the correct response to that is oh oh, whoops my bad it is not to get mad that that's like a, a therapy thing like go to therapy folks it helps but like opportunities to learn are gifts they're not opportunities to be wrong they're opportunities to learn i, I started giving out something on my channel called the thomas edison award of we learned this doesn't work and i found that to be a fun way to spin decks that are complete trash and that i'll never use again but it's an opportunity to learn if you think of it that way you should always be moving towards more knowledge higher enlightenment more understanding and net decking for better or worse is a shortcut to acquiring knowledge uh you don't have to figure out channel fireball by yourself lots of people have already done it so use the resources at your disposal and you will be better at magic for it. That sounds like an awesome soundbite to end the episode on. Thank you folks for listening, and we'll be back again in two weeks. 